Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, Southbridge. It is uh, great to be here with you this morning. If you are a guest with us today, we just ask you to fill out the connection cards in your worship program. And then also, uh, I want to say to you, if you've been checking out our church for a little while, we've got a class that we're starting today after the second service. It's called Discover 101. You're invited to be there. I'm going to talk a little bit about the church, talk this, the story of this church, and then about church in general. And we'll do some Q&A, but here's the kicker. You get the city barbecue afterwards. And so maybe you're like, I don't know about membership. I don't know. City barbecue. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Well, come on over for lunch after the second service. We'll be out in the cafeteria doing that. We'd love for you to, to be a part of that. And if you've got kids and they need uh, child care, uh, just make sure you tell the folks that are out there. We'd love to have you and uh, have some lunch together. And then also just a couple things that are going on in our church uh, before we jump into the, back into the series, uh, looking at the one another commandments. Uh, one thing is some people asked, we had a member night not too long ago. And uh, as many of you know, I won't rehash, rehash the whole announcement, but God's provided financially for us in an incredible way with the land that we owned over on Glenwood Avenue. And the question was, when are we actually going to close on that land? Well, we don't have the exact time yet, so we're not going to celebrate quite yet. We got an email last week saying perhaps this coming Wednesday, for sure by the end of the month, uh, we're going to close on that property. And so we will, yeah, we can give the Lord a hand for that. Um, but when it actually happens, then we'll have a, a celebration together when it actually takes place. And then just also, just so you know, um, God's going to work all, continually in different people's lives, believers, non-believers. In the last two weeks in a row, uh, we've had people trust Jesus as their Savior in our Sunday services. And uh, many, yeah, you can give the Lord a hand for that too. All of heaven rejoices. We clap. We're a clapping church. If you're a guest, just get your, get your hands out. Get ready. Um, but God's using each one of you in that process. So it's not just what happens here in the I mean, obviously, you're the tech team working, the worship team working, ushers, all that stuff that happens in here. Uh, but everything that takes place, from the website, uh, praying, like all the things that you all do that serve and are part of this body, uh, you're part of that. And so I want to thank you for that and just let you know God's at work, and he's changing lives. And I think he wants to change somebody's life significantly this morning. I don't know if it's yours or not, um, but I think that the message that God has for us this morning is going to be perhaps unique in your spiritual journey. So let me pray for us as we open up the scripture. Father, thank you that you desire to meet with us, that you've placed each one of us in the exact spot where we live and move and have our being and the breath that comes into our lungs is a gift from you. And so you've got us here today. You, you decided when we'd be born. You decided when we would sit in this room. And we come before you right now with our lives and just say they're yours. And we ask you to speak into our hearts, into our minds, we have expectations that you do something in these moments, just like Pastor Seth was saying before. God, I pray that you would do something beyond what we could ask or imagine. For some, it may be down a path we didn't want to go down on our own. We've got a plan for our lives. We know what we want to do. And I pray that you would help us to take your detours. And Father, I pray for some of us that it's just continuing to walk by faith with you. And maybe you've got a next step. Or maybe it's just an encouragement that we're doing the things that we're going to talk about already in this passage of Scripture today. And some of us, it's conviction. God, I pray that you do a work in us, please. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as I was thinking about this week's message, I thought about it as a young boy growing up in the Midwest watching TV, and I had to watch TV live for some of you that are maybe like millennials or whatever. Uh, there was no live streaming. There were no DVRs. Everything was by appointment. You either watched it while it was happening or you didn't see it. My kids came into the living room this week when I was watching something on ESPN. They said, is that live? Is that actually happening right now while we're watching it? They were like blown away by the fact of live TV. When I was a kid, everything was live TV. 
But every once in a while, they would interrupt. Maybe there'd be a flash flood or there'd be a tornado or something that would happen. There'd be this terrible noise that would come on. It'd be like, do you remember AOL when the internet first started coming out? Like, it's like you put something in the microwave that wasn't supposed to be in there. Just terrible noise. And then they'd say, we interrupt your regularly scheduled program. What was that? Yes. Thank you, tech team. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Yep. That's a phone dial, for those of you who don't know what that is. They're trying to get your attention. They're interrupting what's happening. You're missing the light. They don't just, it's like you came back, you missed a segment of whatever was happening in that moment. Here's my prayer for you this morning. That God would interrupt your lives. He'd interrupt your spiritual journey. As we look at this passage of Scripture, this might be one of the more difficult messages you've ever heard. Not because of the words I'm going to say or what's going to happen in these next 30, 40 minutes that we're going to have together. But if you decide to do what we're talking about, it'll change your life. So we've been doing this series called Be Connected. We're talking about these one another commands. There are about 59 of them in the New Testament. And when we started a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the foundational one, which is to love one another. Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 34, love a new commandment I give you, love one another. But here's the kicker, just as I've loved you. So how did Jesus love us? We saw that real love meets real needs and it requires real sacrifice. And so it's not just that we have warm, fuzzy feelings about one another, that we'd be willing to lay our lives down for the sake of the other people, other believers is what he's talking about. He says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. And wasn't it ironic? We had already planned that out before anything terrible had happened in our country that that week a guy decided to shoot about 500 people in Las Vegas. Hatred was very evident. Darkness is in this world and you're called to be the light. And we do it by loving one another. And we saw that. I think most people would agree with that though. And then last week, we did part two in this series, and we talked about not speaking against one another. We saw when we speak against one another, we're showing we actually have a heart of superiority over that person, over God's word, actually over God. And so God maybe stepped on our toes and stirred some stuff up, but I bet most of us agreed with what we talked about. This week may be different. This week, we're talking about a topic that could derail us. We're talking about forgiveness, but, but before I go too far in saying that, I'm not talking about forgiveness like the forgiveness we receive at the cross, the forgiveness that was given to us, the, the, what will happen when Jesus died for us, that Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Not the first John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just, he will forgive our sins. We're not just talking about him forgiving us and the forgiveness we receive, we're talking about forgiving others, the forgiveness that we give because of what we've received. And so I'm going to ask you a question in just a moment. And let me just say pastorally, I know that asking this question may make you think of some of the worst pain you've ever experienced in your life. Maybe what makes this the hardest message you've ever heard. May derail you. I understand. I know that that's true. But here's the question. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? Some of you might forgive regularly. It might be a regular way that you live life, and that, that's great, that's incredible. As that happens, for some of you, there might be a person that comes to your mind, but ask the Lord to bring the person to your mind. Maybe put an image in your mind, maybe place a name on your heart. Who do you need to forgive? And hopefully that'll shape the way that you hear the rest of what we're going to talk about as we're in the book of Ephesians today, in Ephesians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. In Ephesians chapter 4, talking about forgiving one another. We're going to focus in on verses 31 and 32. I'll start reading before that in Ephesians chapter 4, though, just so that we get the full context. The, the big context of Ephesians, it's only six chapters of the book. It's got an incredibly easy outline. The first three chapters are all about what God has done for us. 
It talks about our identity in Christ. It talks about us being without hope and without God and being reconciled to God through Christ. It talks about being reconciled with one another. It talks about God doing beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. The first three chapters, the last three chapters, four, five, and six, are all about what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live in light of the first three chapters. In light of what God has done, what should the results then be? Positionally, first three chapters. Practically, last three chapters. One of the themes of the book as a whole is that God brings intimacy. He unites all things together in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he brings sinners into intimacy with him. He reconciled. We are without hope, without God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God reconciled us through Christ. We are saved by grace, through faith. It's a gift that's given to us. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, through the end of the chapter, it's, there's a reconciliation that happens between people. Jew and Gentile can even be reconciled to one another because of the reconcil- reconciliation we have with God. And then in chapter 3, we see that that's supposed to be put on display in the church. Chapter 3 and verse 10, there's a special work that's happening just in the church. The angels are watching it. There's a cosmic movie being played through our lives for the angels. And then chapter 4, we see one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, because practically, we're in the practical section, chapter 4, practically the way this works out is in relationships. And so chapter 4 talks about a bunch of hindrances to intimacy or community and a bunch of ways to have intimacy or community, and they counter one another. And so look at it with me. In Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17, Paul says, the author of this, the Apostle Paul says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's not talking about here uh, a racial Gentile. He's talking about non-believers and the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to, here's where it comes from, you might underline this, due to their hardness of heart. That's the problem. They've become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. You're supposed to be, as a follower of Jesus, you should be different. You shouldn't just blend into this world. You should be different. But that is not how you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And then verses 22 and 23, the reason why I'm reading way up here, we're going to focus just on verses 31 and 32, but verses 21, 22, 23 really are what hang the whole deal. There's a commandment that happens here, positive, negative commandment that happens here, put off and put on, negative, put off, positive, put on. That's what prefaces the whole deal of what we're talking about today. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's crucial. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in the true righteousness and holiness. And then verse 25 connects to that, therefore, and then it's all about putting off and putting on. And there's this rhythm that goes through this section. Put off this, negative command, put on this, positive command, and then it's followed by the reason. Here's the motivation for doing this. Put off, put on, put off, put on, negative command, positive command, here's the reason. And then we're going to jump down to ours. They're all about relationships. But in verse 31, it says this. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away. This is what you put off. Here's the negative command from you. Along with all malice. Here's the positive. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Put off, put on. Here's the reason. Put off. All this stuff that leads to dissension, you read verse 31, it's all these things. They're going to break fellowship. All these things are going to hinder relationship, and they build on one another. Verse 32, put on a forgiving spirit. You forgive just as you've been forgiven. There's the motivation, as you've been forgiven in Christ. 
But the key is to understand this back in verse 21, 22, 23, 24, putting off and putting on, putting off these old, these deceitful desires, putting on this new way of life. So positionally, this has happened for you. Practically, it works out in relationships. Because you know what? It's really easy to be a lot like Jesus when it's just you and your Bible all alone. But things get difficult when you get close with other people. It's one of the reasons why people uh, don't want to be intimate. It's kind of like, it's like looking in a mirror. If you get far enough away from a mirror, you have no blemishes. Got no wrinkles, no gray hairs to pull out. You just got to get far enough away and you look good. When you get close, it's not always, some of you got to get really close because you're really good looking. Others of us, you start to go, I'm good. (laughs) That's what happens in relationships. Relationships don't cause you to sin. They expose your sin. We are sinful people. Every relationship we have with another human, believer or not believer, they're all sinners. It's forgiven sinners, unforgiven sinners, but we're all sinners. We all got problems. When we get close, it exposes those problems. And so what does he tell us to do? Verses 21 through 24, put off the deceitful. Stop living with this deceitful desires that you have, thinking this is what's going to happen. And instead, put on this new way of life that only comes from being reconciled with Jesus Christ. It's not even possible for non-believers. The imagery here of putting off and putting on is the idea of taking clothes off and putting different clothes on. I taught this passage back in about 2008 to our church, verses 21 through 24, and the way that I illustrated it was I had two racks of clothes up on the stage, and one rack of clothes was like old clothes, out of style clothes that I had in my closet, and the other rack of clothes was a tuxedo, and I showed the cheesy clothes that I had, I think I've gotten rid of most of those now, and uh, put on the tuxedo, and that was kind of the illustration there, and I I emailed our staff this week and said, hey, I, I would like to illustrate this truth to our body again, but I don't want to do the same illustration, help me think of ways that I could illustrate this. Our youth pastor sent me an email, and he said, why don't you dress up in 90s clothes since you're a child of the 90s? What is that going to look like? And so, maybe like this. Remember the overalls and the sideburns? Lots of product in the hair. That's NSYNC. That is Justin Timberlake, for those of you who didn't know, in the middle there. But, and I thought, I could humiliate myself and dress up like a child of the 90s. That, I, I, I love you. I want to get God's word into your heart. I, I would do that. But then it was, what are you going to wear for the new clothes? And our children's pastor emailed me and said, why don't you wear a romper? (laughs) And I thought, I love them, but I don't think there's a world in which me wearing a romper is ever a good idea. In fact, I don't think that's a good idea for any man. I'm sorry if you're wearing one today. So I want you to get this. I hope that you can get that image out of your head. But the idea is to put off the grave clothes. Those are clothes of death. Those are clothes of wrath, the old way of life. You've got these deceitful desires. What's he talking about with deceitful desires? It's the same as why you eat the fruit. It's why you do any sin. It's why you lust. It's why you get angry. It's why you're jealous. You think that it's going to deliver something, and in the moment, sin is almost always pleasurable. But it's a short-term view. We don't think about the long-term and what it leads to. And so you see the cycle of sin in the book of James, that we're led away by our own evil desires. And eventually it's death. But you've got a new way of thinking. You've been reconciled to God. You're no longer a child of wrath. Take off like Lazarus coming out of the tomb. Take off the grave clothes. Put on this new, these new clothes. But what he's talking about here is not a physical thing that actually takes place. It's all heart stuff. And so if you go through verse 25 through 30, you see. It's like take off deception. Take off talking about falsehood. But speak and build each other up. So we talked about speech last week. It's no longer steal. This person is transformed. No longer stealing. You're robbing. You're always continually trying to get what you can get from everybody else, but instead, work with your hands so you can give. And then you get to ours. 
And go back to verse 31. It's got this, all these characteristics. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away. Put that off from you along with all malice. And here's what you're to put on. Kindness and compassion and forgiveness. And what we see is this. When you look at all those things in verse 31 together, uh, you get this characteristic. They're all characteristic of anger, of a, a sinful anger that ultimately leads to vengeance. And so there's only two points today. One of them is about what we put off. One of them is about what we put on. Put off. Forgiveness requires that we put off the deceitful desires of vengeance. Our desire to seek revenge. That we put off the deceitful desires of vengeance. Because it'll feel good in the moment, but it's not... That's not the new life that God has called us to. Put off the deceitful desires of vengeance. And vengeance is something that's natural. It's something we naturally want. Part of it's not bad because it seeks justice. The part of it that's bad is that we're the ones that are seeking it. And we're not the judge. And so you go back to verse 31 and you look at these. They all, they actually, many people believe they, they build on each other. But they all have one thing in common. Look at the, these characteristics. Not only are they all bad. Not only do they all break fellowship. Not only do they all hinder intimacy. But look at the theme here. Let all bitterness, and what does bitterness lead to? And wrath, and anger, and then eventually you do something about it, you might start talking about the people and clamor, and then maybe start saying things intentionally to disparage their reputation and slander, be put away from you, along with all ill will, all malice, and what that can lead to. You see, the, the reality is that vengeance is a natural thing for us to seek. You see it on the playground. So a kid takes another kid's toy, and what do you say? It's mine, mine, mine. You start grabbing. It's not natural to turn the other cheek. It's not natural to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you, pray for those who abuse you, pray for those, pray for those who want your harm, who seek malice against you. See, what's natural is when somebody wrongs you is to start to get bitter about it. Why? You've been treated unjustly. And then that bitterness then leads to anger, and that anger then leads to wrath, and that wrath then leads to activity, and that activity can be lots of different things. And here in our text, we know that what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart from last week's message. So we're talking about clamor, slander, and then more general, all malice. And so we know that that's natural, and we see it, and some of us even, if you see stories of revenge, sometimes that's what movies are all based on, revenge, and you're like, that is right, that is what should happen. I was reading revenge stories this week. There was one about a guy back in 2003, he was known as the Spam King. If you remember back in 2003, that's when the internet was prevalent enough that most people had email, and do you remember all the junk mail you used to get when you, back in, when the email first started coming out, they didn't have all the filters and the spam folders and all that stuff, and you get all kinds of stuff being sold and all kinds of junk you were never even interested in coming. There was a guy named Alan Ralski that was like one of the king, they called him the king of spam. And what ended up happening to Alan, though, was that he ended up having, not to do with spam, a story done about his life, and they showed his big lavish house on this news report, a local news report, and a few people found his physical address. <laughs> now listen to what they did to him. They went and signed him up for a bunch of physical junk mail. <laughs> then they took his physical address and started to spread it around the internet so that everybody that was getting spam would sign him up for physical junk mail. At the peak of it, he was getting, now try and fathom this, hundreds of pounds of physical junk mail being sent to his house. And some of you are like, that is right. <laughs> that is good. Because we, we naturally want vengeance. I read another story this week, though, to take it to another level, of a 73-year-old man who went to a 72-year-old man's house, asked him who he was when he answered the door, then shot him in the face. They figured out why he did this. It was over 50 years earlier. The guy that got shot was in a locker room in high school, 73-year-old guy, playing a prank on the other guy where they put a jock strap on his head and a bunch of people laughed at him. Bitterness leads to anger, 
probably some speech, sorry, some words said about that guy before he got there, and then eventually even murder? So here's the problem with vengeance. The Bible, the Bible talks about vengeance. It's in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believers, he's talking to believers, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So there's not a sin that doesn't get dealt with, just so you know. Sins that are done in secret, sins that are done to you, sins that are done by you, every sin will be dealt with. It'll either be dealt with when you are wrong, say the person wrongs you, it's either dealt with if they place their faith in Jesus Christ at the cross of Christ, just like your sins if you're a believer, or it'll be dealt with by them paying for it for all of eternity in hell. You say, well, the sin that they did against me wasn't that bad. Here's the reality. They actually sinned against God. And God is an eternal God. I remember wrestling with at one point in my spiritual journey, how is it that I can do sins and and I'm going to live for like 60, 70, 80, 90 years, however long I live. But no matter what, it's a small amount of time in comparison to eternity. How do you pay for sins for eternity? The issue is not the sins that you do. The issue is who you've sinned against. You've sinned against an eternal God. All sins are going to be dealt with. Do we trust God to be the one that deals with them? Because the reality is, let's just put some skin on this, many of you here have been wronged in big ways. So some of you stood at the altar, you made vows, you were vulnerable, and somebody violated that. And now you hear this preacher saying, you've got to forgive them. Some of you, your parents are supposed to protect you, and they didn't. Now you're supposed to forgive them? Some of you have had friends that betrayed you, and they clamored against you, and they slandered you, and they, it's clear who did wrong. And you're supposed to forgive? That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. This week, some of you maybe saw that, that the Me Too campaign that was going around. There were women in our church, and probably maybe some men too, that posted, hashtag Me Too. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can look it up. Those are serious wrongs. You're saying I'm just supposed to forgive? Why would we forgive? Well, here's the reality. We know this passage, it's a lot easier to explain these verses than to actually do this here. Even secular psychologists know, though, that forgiving is the the best thing to do. You can look up secular psychology on forgiveness. You'll find things that they'll say. They'll say the happiest people are the people who forgive. People who live the best lives, people that forgive. People that are most confident in life are people that actually forgive. People that actually have the best physical health, oftentimes lower rates of huge problems, heart disease, all kinds of health issues are people who forgive. So it's good for you. That's not enough, to be honest with you. That's not the reason this passage gives. In fact, there are a lot of good reasons not to forgive. I read a blog this week by Paul David Tripp. He actually, it's called The Five Benefits of Unforgiveness. He is a Christian, by the way. And you can look it up. And he talks about the debt that you have. If somebody sins against you, that's a debt that they, they owe you something in that moment, right? I mean, we talk about it all throughout the Bible. Whether, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's the Lord's Prayer. The wages of sin is death. There's a debt that you now have before God when you sin. The gift of God is eternal life. That's a gift that's given to us. But what we actually owe, when Jesus came, he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom. He's paying a debt. Paul David Tripp's article, his five benefits of unforgiveness, they're all about debt. He says debt has power. So when you have a debt, when somebody has a debt to you, you've got power over those people. Debt is identity. Some of us, we use that debt that they have against us as I'm superior to that person. Debt is entitlement. They owe you something in that moment. The scariest one was the last one he gave. The last one was debt puts us in the position of God. And if you were here last week, you know no one here is supposed to be in the position of God. James chapter 4, verse 12. Who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? That's God's role. 
but we want it, and we like it, and we hold on to it. And so here you go to this passage of Scripture, and it says in verse 32, be kind. Kind means to meet needs to, to one another, tenderhearted. There's a compassion there, like we see Jesus having compassion. We talked about the, terrible, uh, the story of the Good Samaritan last week. And then it gets this one. He drives it all home. The antidote to all the stuff that's in verse 31, forgiving one another. But we don't. We see the benefits of not forgiving. And so then we hold on to the debt. Oftentimes we call it holding a grudge. But think about that phrase. When you're holding a grudge, who's holding it? You, you want to make them pay, but you're the one that's holding the grudge. Which isn't that big of a deal when you have a slight offense. And so you think about holding on to the grudge. You get this thing you just hold on to. You carry it around. You can, somebody says something about you at the office. Uh, they didn't give you the promotion you deserve. Uh, they offended you. Uh, they slandered you maybe. And so you carry those things around. You hold on to those things. You're holding the grudge. But what about when they're bigger things? How long can you hold it? Because I can't even lift it up like this one. <laughs> How long are you going to hold on to it? Because I promise you something. God's not going to give you any supernatural ability to disobey him. He's telling you to forgive. You're being commanded to forgive. Just as you've been forgiven. So how long are you going to hold on to it? Eventually, you might be able to carry lots of little things. But some of you have been wronged. And I bet you that when I ask you, Who's the, who do you need to forgive? You probably didn't think about some slight little offense that's happened to you in your life. How are you going to hold on to those things? Because here's the reality about forgiveness. Forgiveness is releasing a debt. You want to know the definition of forgiveness? It's releasing the debt. I'm not going to hold the debt against you anymore. I believe it's going to get paid. It is either paid by Jesus Christ at the cross or it's going to get paid by you for all of eternity. I'm releasing the debt. Doesn't mean you're saying what they did was right. In fact, in order to forgive somebody, you, you have to acknowledge that what they did was sin. Doesn't mean you forgive that person. Doesn't mean you're, you're cool with what happened. Doesn't mean forgetting. There's lots of garbage out there about forgiveness the Bible never says, by the way. But it does mean releasing that debt. You're not going to hold it against them anymore. You're not going to hang it over their head. That you're actually letting go of it. And here's the reality about forgiveness. What makes this passage so tough is not explaining. Well, forgiveness in the Greek means, and here's how this is structured, and this is what was going on in Ephesus. Here's the, pro here's the hard part, is actually doing it. And here's why it's so hard, because it means actually trusting God. Forgiveness is actually a trust issue. But it's not about trusting the person who wronged you. It's about trusting the Lord. Forgiveness is ultimately a trust issue of whether or not you will trust God. So you want, you've got this relationship with God. It's by grace through faith. That's how you start it. Will you trust him when other people wrong you? Will you forgive the way that he forgave you just as you've been forgiven in Christ? You want an illustration of this? Uh, go to the book of Genesis. Read Genesis 37 through 50. There's a story of a guy there. His name is Joseph. Joseph's story is he gets wronged, 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 and at the end of the book of Genesis, his brothers are begging him for forgiveness. What ends up happening, for those of you who don't know the story at all, is the first case of human trafficking that we see is that Joseph, his brothers don't like him, they beat him up, they throw him in a pit, then they sell him into slavery. He goes to another couple places, actually, he gets sold, trafficked, moved, and he ends up, God's got his hand on him, though, and everywhere he goes, he gets to a prominent place. Then he gets slandered by his boss's wife. He gets thrown into jail. He's in jail. We don't know exactly how long, but more than years. Well, he's there. He's built up even in, within the jail into a prominent place. He's got some friends he, he makes, two guys specifically, and they forget him. He's forsaken. He's abandoned by his friends. He gets wronged in almost every way that y'all have probably been wronged. You can imagine being wronged. They forget him. He stays in jail for two more years after those friends betray him. 
He eventually gets out of jail, goes to a prominent place. God's got his hand on him. And then he comes face to face with his brothers. Now, what I think about when I read that story, we don't get a ton of details of what jail was like, but it couldn't have been great. And I know what I would have been doing while I was sitting in prison, eating prison food, getting betrayed by my friends. Who knows what else was going on socially, culturally within that jail? It's verse 31. Little bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. I'd be talking about my brothers. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here. I'd be talking about my old boss's wife. If she didn't lie about me, I've been a man of integrity. And here I am in jail, slandered. Everybody thinks I'm this. I'd be angry at God. I'd be slandering other people. That's what's natural. God did something supernatural in Joseph. When you get to the end of Genesis, it's interesting. His brothers are essentially begging him for forgiveness. And you see what he does in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me. Now, don't, don't miss that. He's not saying what they did was right. They did harm him. It was wrong. It is sin. He's calling it sin. But listen to the trust he has in God. But God meant it for good. God even takes somebody else's sin and uses it for good in our lives. And then he talks about practically how God used that to impact a lot of people's lives. So he can see it. He's got a perspective now looking back on it. I'm not saying there was never a moment of bitterness, or never a moment of anger in Joseph's heart. I don't know that. I don't, I don't know for sure. But I know that he got to the place of forgiveness. Genesis chapter 50, it's about forgiveness. You intended to harm me. But, and he's talking about his enemies. And what does Jesus tell us about our enemies in the New Testament? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. What does he say here? Forgive. Forgiveness puts away vengeance. It's ultimately a trust issue, but here's the reality. It's not about trusting the other person. It's not about not being angry about what happened. It's about trusting God. And I've wrestled with that in my own life before. With people I've had conversation, we've actually talked about forgiveness, reconciliation takes place, and then I'll go and I'll be praying, and I'll think, God, why am I still so mad? Why am I still angry? Why, don't I tr- why am I leery of those people? Why do I not want to let them get close again? And I'll tell you, two guys that have helped me with this, Thomas Watson, he's a Puritan preacher from the 1600s, and John Piper. And they both say this, you don't have to trust your enemy, but you do have to forgive them. You don't have to, you, it's okay to have healthy boundaries with people. And so some of you, when you hear me say forgiveness, you think I'm just saying, well, let them back, just like nothing ever happened, just for, as far as the east is from the west, you forget it. No, no. That's foolishness in some cases. Somebody's a, a child molester. We don't put them in charge of our children's ministry. But we tell them about the love and the grace of God. We forgive them. But there's wisdom that comes after that. Now, here's what you can't do. You can't say, I don't trust you, and I'll never trust you again. Because that's not forgiveness. Because you're not giving them space that God might transform their lives like he's transforming you. But you can say, I, I forgive you. I just don't trust you. I forgive. But when I think back about what happened, I'm still angry about it. I'm not holding the anger over your head. You don't owe me something. I'm not bringing it back up. It's not a debt. But it was wrong. What you did, you, you meant harm. And so there's, there might need to be boundaries. But there's not vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Those are deceitful desires that make you think, that I'm going to hold this over this person. You're the one holding it. You get trapped in your own prison. And forgiveness requires that you put on, put, put on display your own forgiveness. 
So you put off this deceitful desire for vengeance. You put on, display your own forgiveness. Forgiveness requires we put our own forgiveness on display. Look at it. We get the reason in verse 32. Verse 31, remember, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And what are we supposed to do? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, and then as is the key word, as, just as. God and Christ forgave you. Here's the reason why we forgive. The reason why we forgive is not what secular psychologists say, because you'll live a better life, you'll be happier. That's not the reason that's given here. You would think maybe, in light of the context even in chapter 4, that he'd say, because you're all part of the church and you need unity in the church. That's not why. Because you'll have better relationships. That's not why. The reason why is because you've been forgiven. When you fail to forgive, what you're demonstrating is you don't grasp your own forgiveness. You may know about forgiveness. You may be able to quote verses on forgiveness as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just. He will forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But do you know what it feels like to be cleansed? Because that's different. Jesus tells a story about it in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, what happens is that Jesus is teaching about relationships in Matthew chapter 18, and Peter comes to him and realizes the key to any relationships that are going to be intimate, you're going to get close to one another, is forgiveness. And the rabbis in, in Peter's day taught that if you're going to forgive, you have to forgive at least three times. Three times is the, is the number of perfection. And so Peter decides to be an overachiever, and he comes to Jesus and he says, how many times do we have to forgive, Jesus? Then he answers his own question. <laughs> Isn't that arrogant? Seven? Look at me. I'm like A-plus student. And then Jesus blows his mind, and he says, 70 times seven, Peter. Or some translations say 77 times. Some, some people use 70 times seven, 490 times. The point isn't the number. What Jesus is saying is you forgive so much that you're going to lose track of the number. It's way beyond what you're thinking, Peter. You haven't gone far enough, Peter. You think that you're going above and beyond with seven. You're not even close. You just keep forgiving. And he tells his other place. And in Luke, he says, every time somebody comes to you and asks for forgiveness, you have to give them forgiveness. So you just keep on forgiving. It's a way of life for you. But then what Jesus does, he tells the story. He tells a story. He says the kingdom of heaven is like, you know what the kingdom is like? It's like a king who calls to settle accounts. And he tells this story about a guy who has this huge debt, 10,000 talents. That's like the national debt, okay? Imagine that on one person. Nobody's paying that. If you are, the government would love to speak with you about your taxes. But no, nobody can pay 10,000 talents. This is a number that's like a gazillion is like what that number means. This is just a huge number when Jesus says this. And he stands before the king, and he says to the king, will you just give me more time? And if you read the story and you have any idea what you're talking about with 10,000 talents, you're like, dude, there's not enough time. You couldn't have enough time. You're not going to live for hundreds of thousands of years. There's no amount of time you're going to come up with. You can't pay. It's impossible. And the passage says that the king, who's a representation of God, has mercy on the guy, forgives his debt, sends him out, and he bumps into a friend who owes him 100 denarii, which is a significant amount of money. Some people say it's about three months uh, worth of wages. But in comparison to 10,000 talents, not a big deal. Now, he grabs the guy by the throat, starts choking him, demanding that he pay. And if you look at it, it's like, well, that's just. I mean, he should pay. He owes the money. But in light of what's been done for that guy, everybody knows this guy's a moron. How in the world are you grabbing that guy after what just happened in your life? And so some people see that. And they go to the master and they tell the master what's happened. And the master's angry. And the master calls him back in says, didn't I forgive you all this debt? And he throws him in jail until he can pay, which he can't. There's not a time frame in which he's going to be able to pay. And then Jesus ends that story in Matthew chapter 18 saying, 
And so will my Father treat each one of you if you do not forgive from the heart. See, this from the heart. See, some of you, you have forgiveness. It's in your head. You know about forgiveness. You can quote verses on forgiveness. Have you been forgiven? Have you received forgiveness? Because this passage is saying, as you've received forgiveness, that's how you give forgiveness. How have you received forgiveness? Let's just think about the forgiveness we've received. It's unlimited forgiveness. You've been forgiven an unlimited amount. That's what 70 times 7, that's what he's talking about. When you grasp what happened for you at the cross that you sinned against an eternal God. So it doesn't matter how much, well, I never murdered anybody. Well, James says if you break the law in one way, you've broken the whole thing. So yes, you have murdered someone. Because we've all sinned. Everybody sins. Even little kids, everybody sins. You stole the cookie out of the cookie jar and you told the truth about it and everything ever since then. But you said you broke the whole law and you sinned against an eternal God, which, is, which the requirement to pay that back is eternity in hell. Or what Jesus did at the cross. And so we've all sinned a bunch. And when you came to Christ, all of your sins were forgiven. Grasp that for a second. Not just some of you came to Jesus when you were seven years old. It wasn't just all the sins you committed until you were seven. Because some of you think that's why your story is not as exciting as somebody else's story. It's all the sins you committed. Present, past, future, all of your sins are forgiven. Sins you haven't committed yet were forgiven at the cross if you've received Jesus at the cross. You have unlimited forgiveness, and it was undeserved. You didn't deserve to be forgiven. See, you didn't get to a point where it was like, I'm seeking God, I just need his forgiveness, and then we'd be good. No, he came after you while you were a sinner, while you were his enemy, while you were rebelling against him. He pursued you. How many of you are willing to forgive like that with somebody? Now they're just coming to you asking for forgiveness. Now that they got to a place where you could trust them enough to forgive them. And so if we have unlimited and undeserved forgiveness, let me ask you this. How limited is your forgiveness? I'll forgive them as long as they never... If you can fill in that blank, you're not there yet. I'll forgive them once they... Once they deserve it, right? Once they can be trusted with it? Once they... What? Unlimited, undeserved, and here's the reality, unmistakable forgiveness. Because the point of this forgiveness is to reveal Christ. You have a very distinct Savior. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one else. So he's unique. There is no other name, Acts 4, 12, no other name by which men shall be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. He's the, he's the one in Isaiah, by his, because of our iniquities, he crushed him. It's by his blood, we are healed. The only Savior like that. And he's got unique forgiveness. And so when you see gospel forgiveness, when you see forgiveness, it's not motivated by, ah, good people forgive. This will be make me happier. This will be, no, because you've been forgiven, that's gospel forgiveness. Because you've been forgiven, you then give forgiveness. When people see that, that's a distinct forgiveness. That's not, let's just work this out because we've got to get this deal done. We have to live under the same house. We go to the same church. No, no, no not that stuff. I realize how much I've been forgiven. How foolish if I didn't give forgiveness. That's gospel forgiveness. Forgive as we've been forgiven. It's unmistakable. You see it, the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts is Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen's being stoned for his faith, do you know what he says as he falls to his knees and he's about to die? God, don't hold this against them. What does that sound like? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When you're forgiving, do people see Jesus in the forgiveness? Let's read a story this week about some of the Coptic Christians in Egypt. And if you're familiar with the happenings in the news, uh, you know what's going on there with ISIS and, and all the things that are taking place there. 
and there was this news broadcaster, and when I read, I don't watch Egyptian television, but what I read was that he's the most famous television host there, and that when he heard this woman talk about forgiveness, for 12 seconds he was speechless on the air. Now think about TV silence for 12 seconds. That's a long time. His next statement was the cops, talking about Coptic Christians, the cops are made of steel. What he was responding to was a woman whose husband had just been killed in a suicide bombing at a church on Palm Sunday. Her husband was working as the security guard at the church, and he told a man to step off to the side after he was going through the metal detector. Yes, the church, entering the church there is a little different than here. So he'd go off to the side, and the guy detonated his bomb. And so that guy was one of the first people to die. And she said, I forgive him. She was talking about, she forgive whoever was responsible. She said, I, I pray that God would, be, would forgive whoever that person was. They put my husband in a place I could never even imagine. This is someone who's received the gospel. Well, do you see that kind of forgiveness? It's unmistakable forgiveness. That's the forgiveness you're commanded to have. So who? Who is the person? Who does God want you to forgive? You don't have to muster up the strength to do it you've been forgiven, you've received the Holy Spirit within you that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is living within you, that power is within you he will enable you to do the things he commands you to do he's given you an incredible forgiveness and so you have to realize your own forgiveness, when you realize your forgiveness, then it becomes natural it's a supernatural thing that happens, but it becomes natural for you then to forgive, that's why the passage gives the motivation of, because you've been forgiven, which begs the question then have you, have you been forgiven let's bow our heads and close our eyes